Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning will be coming from Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 through 58. Again, that's Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 through 58. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that can be found on page 949. Again, that's Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 through 58. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So two young boys were spending the night at their grandparents' house a week before Christmas. And it came time for them to go to bed that night, and and they both knelt down beside their beds to say their prayers. And the the oldest of the two boys said his prayer, and then it became the turn of the youngest of the two boys to say his prayer. And when he began his prayer, he was shouting it at the top of his lungs. He said, Lord, I want a new bicycle for Christmas. And, and Lord, I want to get a Nintendo Switch for Christmas. Lord, please, please make these things happen. And his brother looked at him and said, you don't have to shout. God's not deaf. And the youngest boy said, I know God's not deaf, but Grandma is. <laughs> you know, the holiday season can bring out the best and the worst in us. Especially when we go home. Let's face it, for some of us, going home can be the most enjoyable part of the holidays. But for some of us, it can be the most stressful part of the holidays. And that dichotomy of experience, of great celebration and joy versus great stress and fear, that dichotomy of experience reminded me of the one occasion during his ministry that Jesus went home. So if you've got your Bibles and you haven't already turned there, go to Matthew chapter 13 with me today. We're going to look at Jesus' single homecoming. And the reason we're going to look at this study is because his homecoming incited emotions ranging from excitement to anger. And this morning I want us to examine how the people of Nazareth reacted to Jesus when he returned home because their varying degrees of reaction reveal the two options we have when it comes to how we respond to Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 13, I I want you to notice, if you look down at verse 54, you'll notice that we're told Jesus came to his hometown and he taught in their synagogue. This is the one time in all of Scripture that it's recorded that Jesus went home. And I want you to notice the initial reaction of the people of Nazareth to Jesus' homecoming. The people initially 
react to Jesus with acceptance. They initially respond to him with acceptance. See, he, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 54, he's in his hometown, and he is invited to teach in their synagogue. Now, I know that word invited does not appear in the text, but let's not underestimate the significance of the information we have been given in this text. When Jesus came to Nazareth, he's going to be invited to the synagogue. Not every individual gets to speak in the synagogue. Jesus is being given the opportunity to read from the prophets and then to expound on that reading. Not everyone gets the opportunity to do that. In fact, we can see in Acts chapter 13, there's an occasion in Acts chapter 13, and I believe it's in verse 15, where Paul and Barnabas are extended that privilege as well. They're in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, and they're present there for the service on that Sabbath. And the rulers of the synagogue reach out to them and say, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. They were given an invitation to speak. Jesus is being afforded that invitation as well. Jesus didn't barge into the synagogue that Saturday and demand an opportunity to address the congregation. No, he received an invitation to speak, and that indicates that he had become a well-known, he had become well-known as a teacher. He was well-known, he was well-respected, to the point that the synagogue of his childhood wanted to hear from him. And this is not surprising when you consider what preceded this event. I know we're in Matthew chapter 13, but if you skip over to Luke chapter 4, you'll see Luke's version of this account. And, and Luke's version is set immediately after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 4, the first 13 verses tell us about his temptation. The story of his, rejection, of his, his homecoming does not begin until verse 16. In between there, in between the temptation and his homecoming, we're, we're told this that Jesus returned from the wilderness where he was experiencing the temptation. He returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. In other words, Luke indicates that Jesus returned to the region of Galilee, where Nazareth is located. He returned after enduring the temptation, and he began his ministry of teaching and of healing. And news about his teaching and news about the miracles he performed had made it to Nazareth before he did. And this is supported by the fact that if you look at Matthew's account there in chapter 13, if you look at Mark's account, you'll see that they are preceded by several similar stories. For instance, before Jesus gets to Nazareth in Matthew and Mark's accounts, he heals a leper. He heals, he heals a paralytic that was let down through the roof. He heals a man with a withered hand. He brings Jairus' daughter back to life. He calms a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and he casts out demons into a herd of pigs. All of these miracles had preceded his trip to Nazareth. But some of his great teaching preceded his trip to Nazareth as well. If you were to scan the chapters that precede Matthew chapter 13, you'll see that the Sermon on the Mount is recorded before it. That beautiful teaching that Jesus gave to that crowd. 
Many parables preceded this, including one of the more famous, the parable of the sower. So Jesus is engaged in a great deal of teaching before he got to Nazareth, and that preceded him as well. So before Jesus ever steps foot in his hometown, he's already done some amazing things, and he's already established himself as an authoritative teacher. And so in inviting Jesus to read from the scroll of Isaiah and expound on it, his hometown synagogue demonstrated their acceptance of him as a distinguished teacher. But I also want you to notice there in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 54 that we're told his hearers were astonished. Those present at that assembly were astonished at his teaching. Luke says it this way in chapter 4 and verse 22. It says that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, this is not an unusual reaction for people to have who heard Jesus teach. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, we're told that the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not like their teachers of the law. A similar statement also appears in Mark chapter 1 and verse 22 after Jesus taught in the synagogue that was in Capernaum. So when people heard Jesus teach, they were amazed at his knowledge, at his style, at his teaching, because he didn't do it like the scribes who appealed to various authorities before them. He spoke as if he was the authority, and that's because he is the authority. And here's the point. The point is that not only was Jesus invited to address the Nazareth synagogue on that Sabbath, but that audience which was present was so impressed by what they heard that they couldn't believe that this was the same guy that used to be that boy who belonged to Joseph and Mary. They initially accepted him as an authoritative teacher on par with, if not superior to, the scribes, to the teachers of the law. They accepted him by inviting him in to speak to their synagogue. And they were astonished at what they heard. The people of Nazareth's initial reaction to Jesus was acceptance. But their reaction changed. You see, if you look down at verse of Matthew chapter 13, you find out that their ultimate reaction to Jesus was rejection. It's in Matthew chapter 13, verse 57, we're told that they took offense at him. Now, why were they offended? According to Luke chapter 4, Jesus was handed the scroll of Isaiah and asked to read a passage from it, then expound on it. And Jesus chose to read what we know as Isaiah chapter 61 in the first two verses. According to Luke's version of the account, Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, this is what Jesus read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. For Jesus, this passage that's taken out of Isaiah chapter 61 seems to be the most important messianic passage in the whole of the Old Testament. He would reference this passage again in Luke chapter 7 when John the Baptist sent messengers from prison to ask, are you the one to come or are we to look for another? 
And the reason Jesus cared so much about this passage is because it identifies the evidence by which someone can know whether or not he is the Messiah. In other words, Isaiah's prophecy indicates that you can identify who the Messiah is because he is the one who proclaims good news. And he's the one who restores sight and so on. Now remember, Jesus' reputation preceded him before he arrived in Nazareth. That audience had heard of his miraculous activity as well as his teaching ministry prior to his arrival. So when Jesus referenced this passage in Isaiah, and then as Luke tells us in Luke chapter 4 and verse 21, he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. When he said that, his audience did not miss the implication of what he was saying. They understood him to say that he is the one about whom Isaiah was prophesying. And that's where the offense began. I want you to notice something in Matthew's account, Matthew 13, verses 54 through 56. I want you to notice what this audience began saying among themselves as they listened to Jesus teach, as they listened to him read from Isaiah and then claim that today that passage had been fulfilled in their very presence. Look at what they began to say to themselves. They said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty words? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon, and, not, and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? In other words, the crowd was saying to themselves, isn't he one of us? Wasn't he raised right here just like us? Didn't he grow up like us? In my opinion, they appear to be offended because his claim to be Messiah demeaned them. It demeaned God in their eyes, but it also demeaned them. I think they're thinking, who does he think he is? And they're offended because this man, as they called him, a man, this man who they've known since he was a boy is now claiming to be someone better than them. And that doesn't compute for them. You remember, this is the passage where Jesus is going to say a, a, a prophet is without honor in his own country. And, and, and that, we, we use that sometimes today. And, and it indicates that when you return home to the place where you grew up, to the place where you were young, and they saw the mistakes of your life, it's hard for them to respect you the way that an audience that didn't know you as a boy would. Think about it. Jesus is speaking to an audience that may have been aware of his scandalous birth. He's speaking to an audience that may have included people that were with him and his family when he was 12 years old and they went down to Jerusalem for the Passover and he got separated from his family and in their eyes, they took that as an act of disobedience on his part. We're talking about people who saw him when he was a little boy, an apprentice in his dad's carpentry shop. They may remember some of the mistakes he made. Maybe that first table he constructed wasn't quite level. Now, mistakes, not sins. Maybe he hit his thumb with a hammer. 
Maybe he wasn't the best dreidel player in the village. Maybe they can remember these little snippets of his childhood that made him seem so normal that now they just can't handle his claim to be the Messiah. See, I think they're taking great offense to this claim to be Christ. Because how could that boy that we saw growing up, that we saw developing for those many years, how could he be the Messiah? In their eyes, his claim to be the Christ is foolishness at best and arrogance at worst. But even though they're offended by his claim, they're not enraged and they don't reject him until he implied that he would not perform any miracles for them. Go back with me to Luke chapter 4. I know I have you bouncing around a lot, but these two accounts help us get a clear picture of what's happening. It's in Luke chapter 4, and I want you to notice verse 23 through 27 in particular. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 23, Jesus, after telling them that this passage had been fulfilled in their presence, he said to them in Luke chapter 4, verse 23, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus knew what they were saying to each other. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that they didn't believe he was the Messiah. And the only reason they were there was because they wanted to see a sign, just like had been performed all over Galilee. And the one thing Jesus refused to be was a sideshow act. So he, in effect, said that he wasn't going to perform for them. He wasn't going to do any miracles. He wasn't going to present a sign because they weren't deserving of that because they didn't believe. Journey throughout Scripture and you'll see that Jesus' miraculous acts are usually accompanied by some indication of faith on the part of the one for whom he was performing the sign. And this audience caught the implication of what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus implied that Gentiles were more deserving of his attention than they were. And this infuriated them because it was a slap in the face to their heritage. How dare he imply that the Gentiles are more deserving than they, when they are God's chosen people, when they are the ones keeping Mosaic law, when they are the descendants of Abraham. In fact, this so infuriated them that we're told in Luke chapter 4, verse 28 and 29, that they were filled with wrath, and they attempted to execute him by throwing him off a cliff. See, it's at this point that they've gone from just being offended to completely rejecting him. Completely rejecting him to the point that they tried to kill him. We don't see that degree of rejection again until we get to Calvary. 
But you know what else we don't see? We don't see Jesus ever return to Nazareth again. And Scripture claims that he didn't perform many mighty miracles there because the people rejected him. That's a story you've probably read before and, and, and a story you've come across and you're familiar with. But today, what I want you to do, I want you to simply ask yourself, have I accepted Jesus or have I rejected Jesus? And I know for the vast majority of this audience, your automatic answer is, I have accepted Jesus. I wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning sitting through another one of Kyle's sermons if I hadn't accepted Jesus. And you're sitting there thinking, there was a day that I confessed that belief, that when I, the question was posed, do I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I answered affirmatively, of course, I've accepted Jesus. I'm not trying to undermine the importance of that confession. It is essential. It is non-negotiable. But it is possible to be just like the, the, the people in Nazareth and to initially accept Jesus, but to eventually reject him. And I want to tell you how. That's really where I want us to go today and to consider whether or not the way we're living our lives right now is ultimately a rejection of Jesus just like that those people in Nazareth. Because here's the thing. We can reject Jesus by refusing to accept his teaching. We can reject Jesus by refusing to accept his teaching. See, in John chapter 6, we have the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. What a magnificent miracle that's performed. Thousands of people present and Jesus made a buffet for them. Now, I'm not a big fan of buffets personally. You know, snotty kids going up and sneezing all over your food because the, the guard doesn't come down far enough. But Jesus performed this miracle, and all of a sudden, what do the people want to do? They want to make him king right then. But Jesus escapes from their ill-conceived motive, he journeys to the other side of the lake, but the next day, guess what? That crowd has found him. And now Jesus doesn't have just 12 guys following him. He's got thousands following him. But Jesus knows their motive is not right. And Jesus calls them out on it in John chapter 6. He points out that the only reason they're following him is because they want more food. Or they want to see another miracle. And like I said earlier, Jesus refuses to be a sideshow act. His miracles always existed, as do all miracles, to confirm that he's a messenger of God. His ultimate objective was to teach, and that's what he does here in John chapter 6. Because after that miracle, and after those people have come to find him, he launches into that famous teaching about him being the bread of life. In verse 51 of John chapter 6, Jesus goes on to say, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He adds this in verse 54 of John chapter 6. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now we know, now that we have the entirety of God's word, we know that what he's referring to are the elements of that Lord's Supper we took earlier. That bread which represents his flesh. That fruit of the vine that represents his blood. That memorial that we observe on the first day of the week commemorating what he did for us on the cross to bring about our salvation. We know that that's what he's referring to. But in the moment, some of his disciples found that a very hard teaching. Look in there on chapter 6 and go down to verse 60. It says, when many of his disciples, we're not just talking about the regular crowd, we're not just talking about this this sign-seeking audience. We're talking about disciples. We're talking about followers. When many of his disciples heard it, a reference to his teaching about his, his, uh, his flesh and his blood, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is a hard teaching. How can we accept this? And they found this teaching so difficult to accept that if you look at verse 66, we're told many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So what ends up happening during the bread of life discourse is that Jesus presents some teachings that are not easy to accept. And some disciples rejected him when they decided that his teaching was too hard. And Here's my point. Some of us are not unlike these former disciples. We begin following Jesus, but when we come across a teaching of his that we don't like or that we find too difficult to obey, we either ignore it or justify it or justify not keeping it in some fashion. It's in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15 that Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. How many of us do a good job of keeping that command? Isn't our, 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 our idea to, okay, I, I've been offended by this person, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go tell the elders, I'm going to have them handle it. Or I'll, I'll go talk to the minister about it, maybe he can fix it for me. We often avoid doing exactly what Jesus said, and Jesus gave it for a reason. Jesus gave this instruction for a reason, but we find that too difficult. Because we don't like confrontation. We'd rather somebody else do the confrontation for us. Or think about Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 19 on the subject of marriage. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And think about how often some individuals, not all individuals, not all cases, but some cases, people reach the point in their marriage that's just become too hard. And Jesus' teaching on why or Jesus' teaching on when divorce is applicable is too hard. So we justify another means. We justify an acceptable roundabout to get out of our marriage. You see, we do have these moments when we come up against a, a teaching of Jesus that we find too hard and too difficult. And instead of keeping it, we just choose to ignore it. Or we choose to rationalize an alternative. But Jesus said in John chapter 14, If you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. Think about that for a moment. What's the implication of what he's saying? What's the implication if you don't keep his commandments? What does that mean? His implication is that that you don't really love me. If you don't keep my commandments, then you don't really love me. Your heart's not all in on loving me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, we can reject Jesus when we decide that his commandments aren't worth keeping or are too hard to keep. But that's not the only way that we can potentially reject Jesus. We can reject Jesus by refusing to adhere to his standards. I'm reminded of the rich young man who is talked about in Mark chapter 10 and in Matthew chapter 19. Here's this guy that comes up to Jesus with a really great question, a question all of us would want answered. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Wouldn't you love to just sit down with Jesus, ask that question, get all the details, and go about your day? Keeping what he says. So the rich young man comes up to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. In other words, Jesus says, if you do what God has told you to do, that's how you'll receive salvation. And the rich man, the rich young man, says, I've done that since I was a kid. That's admirable. I'm impressed. Good job. That's what I'm thinking. This guy's been keeping his commandments his whole life. See, for this guy, it's not a matter of whether or not Jesus' teaching is too hard. It's not a matter of whether or not God's commandments are too hard. If it's black and white laid out there for him, he's good at keeping it. He can do that. For the issue for this rich young man is that the standards are sometimes too high. See, Jesus responds to him after hearing that the rich young man has kept the commandments his whole life. Jesus says, one thing you lack. There was something missing in this guy's life. There was something that did not connect. Jesus says, here's the thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. Now I want you to think for a moment. Is there anywhere in Mosaic Law, or is there anywhere in the teachings of Jesus, anywhere in the whole of Scripture where God's people, where God's followers are commanded to sell all their possessions and give it to the poor? There's reference to benevolence throughout Scripture. There's an expectation of benevolence throughout Scripture. There's even a passage in Luke that speaks of selling what you have to give to the poor, but never all. Never are we commanded to sell all we have and give to the poor, but this guy is. Why is that? Because his standard of obeying God was too low. He was comfortable just giving his tithe for just doing that one thing, for making sure he gave that percentage to God. He was okay with that being it. That was his bare minimum standard. But he's missing the bigger picture. A life sold out for God that's willing to do anything and everything for Him. His standards were too low, and Jesus pointed that out. And some of us are not unlike the rich young ruler. We begin following Jesus, but when we come across a standard that we think is set too high, we lower it to meet what we think is an acceptable standard. 
So you think about Matthew chapter 5 and verse 39 where Jesus said, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. It's a command that is anti-revenge, anti-retaliation. But we don't really like that sometimes. We want to get back or at least get even. We want people to suffer the consequences. We much rather like the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life principle. But that's not what Jesus said. And so sometimes we'll lower the, the standard. Oh, we don't have to really just overlook this offense. We don't really have to forgive. We don't really have to turn the other cheek. We lower the standard to meet what we are comfortable with. Or think about Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, where Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Oh, but he doesn't know my enemies. He doesn't know what I have to put up with. He doesn't know the way people treat me. I shouldn't have to love those people, and I certainly shouldn't have to pray for those people. But that's not what he said. Jesus set the bar high. He said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's his expectation. That's the standard. And when we choose to lower the standard to fit what we want, what are we doing? But bordering on rejecting him, like the rich ruler did. Remember that rich young man? He walked away. He was told exactly what he needed to do to receive eternal life, and he rejected it. He walked away sorrowfully, saddened at what he heard. Have you ever done that? When you looked at Christ's standards for your life? One final thing. We can also reject Jesus by refusing to associate with him. This calls to mind Peter and the three denials that he made there while Jesus was on trial. On three different occasions, as Peter, who bravely followed Jesus to his trial, who courageously was present when all the other disciples had abandoned him, stood inside that, that room while Jesus was being questioned, while Jesus was being mocked, while Jesus was being interrogated, while Jesus was being falsely accused, accused, Peter stood out there, surrounded by servants of the high priest and the very soldiers that had arrested Jesus moments earlier. But then, people started putting two and two together and saying, hey, weren't you one of his disciples? Didn't I see you in the garden? Aren't you from Galilee? Your accent gives you away. And every time somebody made that accusation, that association between Peter and Jesus, Peter denied it. No, I don't know him. I don't know this Jesus you're talking about. I'm not one of his followers. No, you've got it all wrong. Every time he did that, he was disassociating himself from Jesus. He was rejecting Jesus in the moment. The very disciple who in Matthew chapter 16 boldly confessed that Jesus Christ is the living Son of God is now saying, I don't know the man. And why was he doing it? To protect himself. 
It was all about self-preservation for Peter. I want to ask you, are we ever guilty of being like Peter? Maybe we don't say the words, I don't know the man. But in the world in which you live, when you step outside the confines of this building and outside of the relationships that you have here, do people know that you're a Christian? Do they know that you claim Christ as your Savior? Do they know that you're a follower of God? Or do you keep that hidden? When you're in the public sphere, do you live as though you're disassociated from Christ? Do you act as though you're not one of his followers? When you get around a certain group of people, do your standards go out the window? Does your morality go out the window? Do you start behaving like the world and start conforming to the world? Or by the way you live, do you continuously proclaim Christ to the world around you? See, we could be guilty of rejecting Jesus by disassociating disassociating ourselves from him. We must not forget that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 33, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I don't think denial is just verbal. I think denial can be behavioral too. And we need not ever be ashamed or afraid to be associated with Christ. Because he wasn't ashamed or afraid to come to this earth and die for us. The goal for me today, the objective I had for day, today was to show you that rejecting Jesus is not limited to just denying him at some point in time by not confessing his identity at some point in time. Rejecting Jesus is something we do even after we have accepted him. And it can happen when we refuse to accept his teachings. It can happen when we, we refuse to adhere to his standards, and it can happen when we refuse to associate with him. So let me circle back around to the question I posed earlier. Have you accepted Jesus or have you rejected him? The very people who watched him grow up, the very people who were in the hometown where his mother and his siblings were, they rejected him. At some point in time, a group of disciples that had followed him and witnessed his miracles and heard his teachings, they rejected him because the, because the teaching got too hard. At some point in time, this individual who had kept all of God's rules up to that point in his life, came across Jesus and found the standards too hard and rejected him. And at some point in time, one of his closest friends, one of his most powerful disciples, the man who was willing to get out of a boat and walk on water, the man who was willing to confess his identity, the man who was willing to swing swords for him, rejected him. So it's not an impossibility that I can't reject him too. Today, our acceptance of Jesus is essential to our salvation. Romans chapter 10 tells us that with the heart we believe, but with the mouth we confess. And that confession 
saves. And Romans chapter 6 tells us that we associate with Jesus when we are baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, when we die to self and we emerge to newness of life. So today, if you need to accept Jesus by confessing his identity as the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, we offer this invitation, and we hope you'll accept it. But there are many of us here today who have accepted Jesus on those terms. But because we rejected his teaching or his standards or his association, we have rejected him. And we need to return. We need to accept him anew. If that's you, we offer this invitation for you to make things right today. Don't leave here today having rejected the only one by whose name you can be saved. So if you need to accept him today, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.